Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Everybody, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer living in Pennsylvania, where it is a million degrees. Adam, we're back. It's been a minute, Matt. Yeah, it's been, it's a, been a little while. It's been a summer. How was your summer? How was your summer break? My summer was all right. I don't take kindly to people complaining about the heat when I'm in Texas. <laughs> I mean, I think last I saw you, I was signing your your book saying "Have a bitch in summer," and <laughs> um, and here we are. We're back at school, back to start the the new school year. Yeah, let's talk about some movies. We we are talking about the the summer blockbuster of all summer blockbusters today, which is obviously the documentary about Fred Rogers called "Won't You Be My Neighbor." Uh, I thought you were going to say the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk with our good friend, Laurel Kopf Taylor, uh, and our first segment of the show, you all know this well, we're going to talk about what Won't You Be My Neighbor has to do with life and ministry and theology and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Won't You Be My Neighbor for this coming lectionary Sunday, which is going to be September 16th, which is also the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. And in our final segment, postludes, Matt and I will take a, just a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. But before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Laurel Kupf Taylor is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Old Testament at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis. She writes widely on the role of children in scripture and in the world. She's been with us before, back when we discussed the musical Annie, and we are so glad to have her back. Thanks for being here, Laurel. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Adam and Laurel both, we are kicking off this season by talking about what feels like the movie of the summer, but it is not the Avengers movie or the Mission Impossible movie. Instead, at least in my little Presbyterian world, the movie of the summer has been Morgan Neville's documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about Fred Rogers, a.k.a. the host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. We haven't talked about documentary much on this show, and this one may be a good chance for us to dig in a bit. It's, it's not quite a biography of Fred Rogers. It's not quite hagiography, but it, what it is is something like a remarkably sincere movie about a remarkably sincere man who made a remarkably sincere television show, and something about all that sincerity feels both totally out of place and maybe desperately needed here in the summer of 2018. I'm curious to both of you if you had the same reaction, if the movie worked for you, what about the movie didn't work for you, but particularly Laurel, you have thought a lot about how we in the church talk about children and minister to children, and I'm curious for your sense of how this movie can help us think about that work. How did it resonate for you? I think I need to start out with full disclosure about the context in which I watched this movie and about my family's relationship to Mr. Rogers and to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. 
And that is to say that I watched this movie with my mother in the week following her mother's death. And my mother and her mother were two of the biggest Mr. Rogers fans I have ever met. To the extent that I'm not entirely sure how much truth there is in the family joke that my mother had to admit to my father before they got married that she was really in love with Mr. Rogers. And my upbringing was completely shaped by their complete dedication to Mr. Rogers and all that he stands for. And when I think about my own work and my choice to do child-centered biblical interpretation and to focus on children in the Bible and children in the church and that idea of cherishing every child and putting children first in my thinking, I think a lot of it really is rooted in Fred Rogers and his dedication to that and how much, uh, how much that shaped my family. I was allowed to watch one hour of television a day as a child, period. And half of that had to be Mr. Rogers, which means that I only ever watched half of Sesame Street. Uh, (laughs) And so my mother made sure to turn on the television halfway through Sesame Street. So I got the second half of Sesame Street and the plot never made any sense because I always missed the beginning. And somehow she concealed that from me. And then all of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And... So all of that comes into my watching of this in a way that makes it really difficult to be critical of Mr. Rogers or Mr. Rogers' neighborhood at all. And absolutely makes it so. I thoroughly enjoyed and felt very moved by this movie in a, in a week when I was feeling very connected to it too. Um, but as I think about it in relationship to church, The biggest part for me that helps me connect uh, the movie and Fred Rogers' television ministry to church is the, uh, the phrase that keeps coming through in the movie and um, that gets used as a soundbite a lot in talking about the movie, that he took everything that makes good television and did the opposite. And I keep wondering what it is that makes good television and also what it is that makes good church, right? Because we're having conversations about how to make church thrive, right? What are the churches that are alive? What are the churches that are thriving? What is good church? And a lot of the conversations we're having about what makes for good church, whether it's what makes for good children's programming in the church, or just what makes for good people programming in the church is becoming really similar to how we talk about what makes for high production value media. And I don't want to discount the fact that the church needs to stay up to date and relevant, but at the same time, I think a lot of what makes for good television isn't what's traditionally thought of as what's ma- what makes for good television when we look at Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that it was low on production value and high on relationship. And what if what makes for good church is that we're 
high on relationship, even if we shouldn't be completely low on production value. I think that's a, a really astute comment, Laurel. Uh, there's a saying that, a, that is bandied about with respect to Neil Young. I think I may have talked about this on the show before, but people used to say, you know, Neil Young makes the stadium feel like a living room, mm-hmm. which is this wonderful compliment about how someone who's in a big space can make it feel like it's very intimate. And I feel like so much of our churches are trying to make the living room feel like a stadium. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're, they're trying to make it feel like it's this big, this big production that we need to, um, that we need to fill with all sorts of media or new media. Um, I, I spent this week taking too long to figure out how to do 3D projection mapping, which is this radical new way in which you can project images onto buildings. And I was like, man, this would be so cool. And the artist and the creative in me was like, yes, this would be really cool. And then after watching this movie, I was also convicted by it, Hmm. by my, my deep desire to try and do something that's cool rather than something that's sincere, which is the, the thing that struck me so much about this movie was, um, how how seriously Fred Rogers took this art, and yet the seriousness didn't show up in the production. It showed up in the subject matter, and it showed up in the way that he communicated, and it showed up in the ways in which he tried to facilitate relationship with people. He's, I was, I, I was just very taken by how deeply serious an artist he was, um, and and how desperate he was to try and take other people serious. Um, and so so much so that irony and cynicism are almost completely absent in, in the work. But like, it's funny that you mentioned production value because I think in some ways like that is the easiest place to place our, our, our irony and our cynicism is that, oh, you know, these people need this. It's the only way that they're gonna pay attention. And so the hmm. the tools of our irony and cynicism show up in the production value. Yeah, I think I don't want to discount the use of new media. I certainly make use of new media, but I don't want it to drive. I want relationship to drive. I want me to facilitate the building of relationship and the communication of our theology rather than do it because it's cool and find a way to make it connect to theology and find a way to argue for it being relationship, let alone forget about relationship because we're so excited about the new technology. I want to use it, but I want to use it to facilitate relationship. I want to use it to make connections. And, and in some ways, the the story in the movie here is both and because in one sense, yeah, he's making terrible television. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's so that 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 soundbite that you picked up on that I think was in the trailer about how you do all you take all the rules for television and do the opposite. Yeah, of, of course. And that I, I find that as a pastor in a congregation that will that will run out 20 pastors before we ever put a screen in the sanctuary, I actually find that very comforting. Uh, on the other hand, he was a media evangelist. I mean, he, he was he, on TV, right? He, he was he's an he, early adopter of TV. He, he, he convinced Pittsburgh Presbytery to ordain him to a validated ministry to go and work on television, which like, I'm not sure that half the presbyteries in the country would do today. Uh, 
and 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 owned it and did some incredible some incredible evangelism uh using a a a media that was totally unfamiliar and unknown to the the decision makers in the church so there's there's a there's a little bit of both ends and i i I like your standard laurel that he's he's using it not for its for its own sake but for the sake of effectively communicating something that that needed to be communicated and the movie does a really deaf job at also employing that a little bit. I don't I mean, I was quite taken by the animation hmm. that they that they spread throughout this movie of the the little tiger who is is walking around and it, it isn't it, it's used quite sparingly, but there are these moments where when the movie talks about Fred Rogers um his relationship with Daniel Tiger it it was quite affecting to see this the ways in which the the animation was able to give us a better sense of Rogers because they didn't have a quote or a soundbite or something to to show in the documentary and i just thought from a from a filmmaking standpoint it was doing something really cool there by like like you said Laurel trying to facilitate a deeper relationship with this person via their their avatar in the world did, did you all learn more about i mean what did this movie teach you more about mr rogers than you knew before how, how, did, how did it affect you did it leave you wanting more or less how, how did how did it sit with you as you watched and laurel i know obviously is a, in, a, in a particularly personal way i think information about mr rogers and his life was more a part of my uh knowledge base growing up than yeah. a lot of people. Um, I, I went to church with his cousin uh, who uh, made a point of making sure that my mother got autographed pictures of him for all of her children and all of that. And, um, but I, I had been less aware of his professional relationships. Hmm. Yeah. And that was really interesting to me. And that was something that I was very interested to learn more about. And also, you know, worthy of reflection as I, I think about my own professional relationships, right? And what it means to really value and take seriously the people you're working with. He was the star, but he, you know, he wasn't the diva, right? Yeah, I think similarly, I, I, I knew little about those. And... I think for probably most of my life, Mr. Rogers was kind of a punchline to a joke. Uh, it was so present within the media that you could do a voice and everyone would know more or less who you're doing, like who you're imitating. And um, and so had had woven himself into this, the fabric of, of the pop culture ecosystem of, of which I was a part. But it was only as an adult that I began to to recognize the the genius that he possessed. I think what this movie did for me was um, it filled out some of the story about how it all came to be. Um, I wish in 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 watching it that there there were more professional relationships. I mean, I think there's. There's the the ones that were really meaningful and important, but there's a, a wonderful moment in the movie where he gets he gets a little bit upset about the 
the ways in which television is training our children to become consumers and how it is uh and and then that's paired also with the ways in which he fought congress in order to fund public broadcasting and there was a moment where i was like can we hear a little bit more about that story i just want i want to know more about the internal politics of yes. public broadcasting and how he himself leveraged whatever power he had which seemed to be considerable to continue not just the funding of it, but the direction of it. I mean, how does, does, you mentioned Sesame Street, which is the other like massive television property that comes out of public broadcasting. How does he function in that world? Because I think if there are some creative cults out in the world, Fred Rogers has one, but Jim Henson also has one. Sure. And both of them have different styles, but I, I kind of wanted to see him overlap with other creative types and see what happened when that, when, when those, those two atoms had to coexist with each other. Yeah. It's really interesting to me, the, the decisions that this movie makes about where to spend its time uh, and what kind of story to tell, because you're right. You could, there's a documentary to be made whose climax is Fred Rogers testifying before the committee um, and, and convincing them to fund public broadcasting. There's, there's a movie to be made that digs deeper into, and probably speculatively, I'm sure, but that, that asks more questions about his childhood and the kinds of wounds that he's clearly carrying around uh that there's a there's there's stuff to be dug into around i mean the 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 piece about his insistence that francois clemens not come out of the closet um because of the disservice that it would do to the work they were trying to do on race and the show just like hit me like a speed bump and it took me a long time to get back into the movie there was there was just places where and i thought also in service of the sponsors i mean johnson right. and johnson being a major sponsor like there was yeah the disconnect there I, I could have spent a little bit more time there trying to to suss a little bit of that out yeah. if only just to complicate his his life a bit yeah but i'm not i'm not sure that they want i guess this is my question is kind of what is the movie trying to accomplish like i loved it and also i'm still not entirely sure what i think it's trying what what its purpose is and so that that's that's my open question to you all. What what is what what is the purpose of this movie? So I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that by by asking another question, which <laughs> is is does the current cultural and social political climate drive some of the decision making about how they're going to portray Fred Rogers? Because in many ways, it was really hard to watch this movie and not think about the ways in which our national leadership talk or the ways in which the um, the expectations of, of talking heads on TVs um, are are expected to, to fight with each other or the ways in which even public broadcasting and people like Charlie Rose, who we thought were in unimpeachable folks were themselves compromised by bad behavior. And so 
I, I couldn't help but watch this movie and and see like here here is a model. We think it's impossible. It's not impossible. But does this movie look or sound totally different twenty if it's made twenty years ago or made twenty years into the future? I keep thinking about how I I have no access point for the moments he was responding to historically that they highlighted in the movie. And it makes me wonder what the rhetoric was then and how different it really is from what we're experiencing now. Whether what we're experiencing right now is a stark contrast with what he was responding to or just a different manifestation of the same. To answer that question, Laurel, I, I've been thinking about the the perception of neighborhoods yeah. and and how important that is to the central conceit of this show is that there is a neighborhood and that this neighborhood r- requires a a contract of care and concern. I think the there's a moment where the the head of the Fred Rogers Institute or something like that talks about how it also requires there you to be in conflict a little bit mm-hmm. and how there is a, a there's a lot of courage and bravery in the ways in which Mr. Rogers neighborhood in particular is um, is a neighborhood uh, to, last week I was walking around Baltimore and a friend of mine had just bought a house and we were looking at, a, at the house and he was uh, he was saying you know this this neighborhood is um, is eighty five percent black, and he said it's in part because this was one of the neighborhoods that got blockbusted, which was when it was a it was a largely white neighborhood, and speculative realtors and business people would um, would pay black people to like walk around the neighborhood or stage fake fights and scare all of the white people into moving out of the neighborhood and they would then sell their houses at a really low price. And so then the, the speculative buyers would buy them and then jack up the price and sell it to African-American families. And so there was all of this predatory work, all of this predatory business that was going on in Baltimore and all of this blockbusting that was going on that was changing neighborhoods within months. So the question of like, what counts as a neighborhood? in the late 60s and the early 70s was changing so radically um, that you couldn't even trust that your neighborhood is going to be the same a a week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks from now. Um, And that's because of all of the cultural prejudice and bias and and hatred that was present within these neighborhoods. And so for me to hear him talk and intentionally name him name it Mr. Rogers neighborhood and try and you know fill it with all of these diverse characters with these diverse intentions and emotions feels like a very specific theological point that he's trying to make about not just the world in which um he's living where neighborhoods themselves are in flux but um this larger idea about how we live together in some measure of harmony before we um, move on to scripture, I want to I want to put one plug in for a component of that, which I think is liturgy. As they talked about uh, the repetition of 
Mr. Rogers coming in the door, um, taking off the sweater, taking changing his shoes, or putting on the, taking off the coat, putting on the sweater, changing his shoes. I, I, I kept thinking about how liturgical that was, that there was something comforting about repeating the familiar beats in such a way as to restate to everyone watching every time you are now entering that relationship of trust and the way you're going to know that you've done that we've done it is that we're going to have this this same opening beat every time which feels feels like worship liturgy to me uh and i i I was that that sparked my imagination a bit sweet I, i have one last question for you before we move on though yeah you all have children is there any children's television right now that you think is worth your children's time? I admit that my kids still watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood streaming. <laughs> it's generational. They, it. they do? It's generational. It's fam- family specific. I imagine my nieces also uh, watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on occasion, although. Uh, the younger of them sometimes call it, calls it Jolly Rogers' Neighborhood. <laughs> uh, having watched the movie makes me think more critically about... I, I always thought pretty critically about what my children were watching, but having watched the movie made me think even more critically about what my children are watching because mm. I, yeah. in general, trust a lot of what's on PBS Kids. And there is quite a range of high-quality educational television on PBS Kids um, that I let them watch with far fewer limitations than I had on my one hour of television. But it still has some of what made Fred Rogers question in its implicit communication about human dignity. Mm -hmm. My kids love Wildcrafts. And I think it's Oof, great. Big favorite in my house. Right? Yeah. I think I, they know so much about animals I had never heard about. And they really enjoy it and they're learning from it. Um, but there is definitely no respect for the dignity of the bad guys. Right. Ab- there's absolute respect for the dignity of the creatures that the wild crats are saving. Um, but even some of the dignity of the protagonists uh, bumping up against trees in ways that would be a big problem for a real person, that would create a serious injury. I'm wondering more about what we're teaching about human dignity with, uh, with some of the slapstick humor that I've accepted in educational television. Yeah, I would co-sign all of that. I mean, Wild Kratz is a is a big is a big hit in our house too, and it has certainly engendered a, a remarkable virtue of curiosity, and I and I, I'm thankful for that. Uh, there's there's a rare day that goes by that my seven year old does not present me with a litany of animal facts about creatures that I have never <laughs> heard of. Um, and and his desire to go and see and explore the world. Um, is is in some part due to that show, and so I'm I'm I appreciate that virtue, but it's not uncompl- it, but it's not uncomplicated. 
Um, I mean, I think I think I I think Daniel Tiger was a pretty good heir, but we've aged past it a little bit in my house. Well, before we move on to our discussion of scripture, I want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century, who's um, an important partner for us as we do this show. And I want to guide you to uh, some of the great work that they're doing. Uh, A recent article that I really enjoyed was written by Ibu Patel, who's the founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps, if you're familiar with that. And he most recently wrote about Muslim identity in the U.S. and how Muslim public figures are choosing to make their identity known. It's a really well-measured article and smart uh, and and delves into all a number of different like corners of pop culture. So if you're listening to this show and you're interested in religion and U.S. culture and also pop culture, it's a uh, it's a really good read. Also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the Century Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Additionally, Matt and I are taking Technicolor Jesus on the road. Laurel, you're invited to come and hang out with us in uh, in, in Texas. Uh, our next episode is going to be recorded live at Mo Ranch Young Adult Weekend, which is coming up on September 21st to 23rd. If you want to join us, there's still time to head over to Mo Ranch uh, to their website and register. We'll put a link up on our show page. And finally, uh, I wrote a book and it's now available and you should buy it because it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I'll let you be the judge. It's called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. Um, So go to Amazon, go to your local bookstore, buy the book. Both Laurel and Matt are mentioned in the, you know, acknowledgments. So you'll get to see their names again. All right, Adam. All right, Laurel. Let's move on to talking about preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and we are looking at the lectionary passages for September 16th, which is the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time. We've got Isaiah talking about teaching, learning, and God's vindication. We've got a passage from James that picks up these themes to talk about the responsibility of the teacher. We've got the gospel passage from Mark, where the disciples recognized Christ as Messiah, and Jesus tells Peter to get me get behind me, Satan. We also have some lovely wisdom literature and poetry. Laurel, as you look at these passages, does anything stand out as particularly interesting given the the themes in our discussion of won't you be my neighbor? There's a big wisdom and teaching theme that ties all of this together. And uh, it it got my attention that James starts out by saying, not many of you should become teachers. Uh, <laughs> uh, that he's emphasizing the, the power of teachers, mm-hmm. how influential teachers are, how influential our words are for those of us who teach, uh, that people really follow that. And... I think that's a really great connection to the conversation we've been having. Uh, That teaching really is a challenging calling. And that the influence influence that a good teacher can have in sharing wisdom can be incredible and can be dangerous. And... Fred Rogers was a very influential teacher, uh, absolutely through his wisdom, uh, but really coming back to that uh, relationship and production value balance, he was an incredibly influential teacher because of the wisdom with which he 
use technology to build relationships. That's, uh, that really brings something to my reading of this that I wouldn't have thought about otherwise. Yeah, similarly, I mean, in, in connection to that Isaiah passage, I think James and Isaiah fit really well together. And that, that first verse of Isaiah 50, verse 4, the Lord has given me the tongue of a teacher. And this is where James, the, the passage of James is, is being connected by the, the people who are creating the lectionary. But it goes on, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word, which I, I think has is such a lovely sentence. The, to sustain the weary with a word. I, I think Fred Rogers recognizing how hard it is to be a child uh, is is such a major part of the movie and and a and the best part of so much good children's literature too. I mean, I could I couldn't help but watch this and also hear in his in his story, like the the interviews that I've read with Marie Sendak and, and other um, amazing children's writers who just had the courage to take seriously children's emotions and mm -hmm. children's experience in the world. Um, and then here's the kicker on Isaiah morning by morning, he, he wakens. Uh, and then this little additional ending wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. And I, I hear just such like a sense of empathy in the passage, like it, how are you going to become a good teacher? Well, you have to be awoken as a student. Like you have to listen to other people who might teach you. And I think what, in watching the movie, I was just so taken by Roger's ability to listen to children, mm -hmm. to sort of sit at their feet and let them teach him and let them drive conversation and press into places. And, and I just found that the, the Isaiah passage was just such a fitting moment hmm. to talk about the ways in which teaching is, requires being, being a student. And, you know, Laurel, I don't know if you see this in, in theological education, but there always seems to me to be a low-level current of contempt among teachers like they 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 don't hate their students but they don't they they feel like they can get away by not respecting them hmm. and that preserves the hierarchy it preserves the um the status quo that is always going to privilege the teacher's experience over the student's experience but i think this isaiah passage and the and the fred rogers movies was, was raising in me all of the ways in which being a good teacher requires you to be sincere and to take deeply seriously the role of student and to privilege it above your own and and think how important and how hard it is to be a student, how wearying it is to be someone who has to learn and how and how taxing that can be both on your ego, but also on your body, on all of the ways in which being a student is is really really hard, and so there's there's that moment and there's the scene in the documentary where was it Prince Friday or King Friday has put up walls and they send yeah. balloons over to to his his castle to help him remember right. things that are important, and one of them is tenderness, and I thought oh. 
that is such the right word <laughs> for this, <laughs> you know, and and that I hear that in in the prophet's words here is like there's a tenderness that comes with or that ought to come with being a teacher. I think that a lot of this is taking fears seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm. When I think about Fred Rogers, I think about certainly taking children seriously, but specifically taking children's fears seriously. And that connects to the vocation of the teacher, that a part of, of the contempt or the bitterness that sometimes uh, comes through, at least in particular seasons of teaching, uh, perhaps not all the time, perhaps not, perhaps not in every <laughs> individual, but there, I think a part of that is not wanting to take those fears seriously. Uh, similarly to how there's a significant risk for adults to take children's fears seriously, to admit that children have real fears that we can't protect them from everything, that they aren't just cute, right? That it's not just cute that they're afraid of that. It's something to be engaged. And it's something to be engaged, whether you're teaching children or adults, that if they're afraid of something, that's not something to laugh at. Right. Yeah. Just like whatever children have to share in a children's sermon. That's not something to laugh at. That's something to take seriously and to build relationships of trust based in taking those fears seriously and responding to them with respect. And there's that moment in the film where uh, and Susan Stamberg is one of the journalists that has spoken with him a number of times. And, and she talks about how he he had this deep this this deep confidence that part of the role of adults was to make sure that children knew that we could take care of them um and that she, and she confesses like how hard it was to do that because she knew there were things in the world that she couldn't protect them from uh and that she felt like she was being dishonest uh, and yet, I think, and, and then the movie kind of cuts away and doesn't quite circle back, except I think with this insistence again that something about building that trust and creating that space in which children could learn to trust and in learning to trust could learn to be valued and learn to be, learn what it was to, to fully be loved that, that allowed for some, some greater outcomes to happen. And in addition, Matt, that, that children are both fragile and resilient. And that shows up in his work quite a bit, that they can handle more than you think that they can. Right, sure. That they are resilient creatures. That they're not going to fold and buckle under all of this. And yet they still are fragile. And, and his ability to balance those two things and figure out when students, I mean, when, when children needed to be um, protected and when they needed to be challenged, I, I think that's part of his own genius. And it's something that I think as teachers you can emulate too, right? Like 
when does when is your time to challenge the student in front of you and when are the when are you supposed to support the student in front of you how do we build those instincts i think ministerially i think you have the same problem is is you have someone in your office and they want to and they're having a, a an issue are they going to respond better for you like pressing them and saying you're strong and you can do this or do they need you to come alongside of them and support them i I, yet, I haven't yet figured out how to balance those two things uh, with with any real dependability because there are times where you you choose the wrong one and you know immediately that you've chosen yeah. the wrong one. Yeah. Matt, tell me about what scripture is speaking to you as you watch Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, for me, it's the it's the Proverbs scripture. Um, Proverbs is is tricky and and hard to preach from. I think for me especially, I mean, it, it sits next to Ecclesiastes, and and I so much more identify as an Ecclesiastes person. Ecclesiastes <laughs> being the the book for people who know the world is broken, and Proverbs being You're the book for people. So vain. Right. And you then, probably think yes. this song is about you, don't yes. you? I did think this moment in the show was about me talking, but apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you know, Proverbs being the, the 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 book for for folks who who think the world is going just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, it, it Proverbs is 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 hard to wrestle with. I think, especially in two thousand eighteen, it feels, I think, at times unsophisticated. Uh, it feels like it's come from some more innocent time. I think it feels oddly conservative in moments. The kind of this, you know, if you just do the right thing, you'll get ahead. Kind of stuff. Uh, it's important for me it's been important for me to remember that somewhat like what laurel was even saying about mr rogers's own original context that proverbs doesn't come from a time that is any less complicated than ours actually comes from israel living under occupation and in a world that was was pretty complicated for them theologically um and and proverbs to me then feels like among other things, or taken at its best face, kind of a restatement of critical values at a time when they needed to be claimed, when there was some virtue in claiming the the, the most simple principles. Um, I, I, I preached this summer on this exact passage for this Sunday, the woman wisdom passage, and I preached on it uh, using... Robert Fulgham's All I Ever Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten uh, as, as a kind of restatement of elementary values. Uh, I preached on it after the Mr. Rogers documentary had come out, but before I'd gotten a chance to see it. And then coming through the door after worship, someone in the line said, hey, why don't this, that your sermon reminded me a lot of, uh, Mr., of, of Won't You Be My Neighbor, the new Mr. Rogers documentary. And I had this thought in my head of like, of course, I should definitely have gone to see that movie. That that is the sermon that would have <laughs> that is the illustration that would have clearly worked here really well. And I I still think that's true. I think homiletically, Mr. Rogers feels like a, a slow pitch down the middle for preaching about Proverbs in the sense of its the the way in which its sincerity and its kind of old fashionedness can feel deeply relevant. Um you know, woman wisdom was kind of the personification of virtue for and at a moment when God felt far away and Israel's 
personified experiences with God were very much a thing of the past. And I, and, and so they, they helped kind of mythologize a character who could help remind them of what the basic decencies were. And, and I wonder if Mr. Rogers in some ways, and if this movie in some ways is, a, is part of the same process of, um, of, of reminding uh, in some ways of mythologizing and some ways of, of recapturing um, elementary virtue. And, I, and I, I think for me, that's part of what its project was. And that's kind of why it hit home so much. Matt, I think that's a, a, a good place to end this is, is recognizing that these simple ways in which Fred Rogers exhibited the best nature of, of humanness and also continue to try and model for a culture what dignity and character and integrity look like is um, is a lesson that is, I think we could we could use another uh, another class on. So uh, but that's going to wrap up our, our conversation about scripture and our time with Laurel. Laurel, this is not the last time that you'll be on the podcast. We will call you again, as we always do. <laughs> when we watch movies that involve children. <laughs> well, I am happy to be a part of this conversation and conversations about children in church and any conversation about Mr. Rogers. Yeah, well, you were easily the, the person that was top of our list to have this conversation with. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laurel. All right, it is time for our last segment. I know you missed it. This one's called Postludes, and just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, Reverend Harrelson, talk to me. What's your postlude for the week? So do you watch Tiny Desk Concerts? I listen to them sometimes. Um, I listen to uh, all, um, all Songs Considered sometimes, but I don't watch the videos much. Yeah, the YouTube videos on uh, from NPR on these Tiny Desk Concerts. So if you're not familiar... The NPR offices will invite some musician to come in and play uh, 15 minutes of music in their offices. And their the back catalog is ridiculous. It is, it is absurd. So much good music. Is, and, and there are incredible performances and the ways in which people use the space and, and are able to do their um, or create their music in a sort of confined locale that's not immediately, you know, set up for music making is pretty cool. So in late August, they invited Yo-Yo Ma to do a Tiny Desk concert. And he's been there before. He did some stuff with Goat Rodeo and some other things like that. But he just brought him and his Stradivarius cello, which is a billion dollars. Um, and he plays Bach by himself because he's doing this tour right now where he's playing the cello sonatas. Um, or cello suites. And he begins with prelude for the first suite for the cello, which is immediately recognizable and everyone has heard. And he talks about how it's the first song he ever learned to play on the cello and how it's a piece of music that lived in him for more than 50 years and how he keeps coming back to it and that you can hear his life story in the playing of the song. And it's just this wonderful discussion about how a song can live in a human for so long and then he plays a couple of other Bach pieces and they're all beautiful and I was just so taken 
by the video and how Yo-Yo Ma continues to find new things in this piece of music and how that's both a test of imagination and creativity for him, but also for the creative power and the sort of inspiring nature of the text itself, of the music. Um, the song just contains so much. And so I was deeply in, inspired by his courage to constantly return to this piece of music, to keep coming back to places that he thinks he knows intimately and finding new things. And this felt all the more appropriate, given that this was the first song he learned as a four-year-old child. And um, given our conversation with Fred Rogers, I was taken by the ways in which this song nurtured him as both a, a boy and as um, as an as an adult. So I commit it to you. I, I think everyone should go and and watch it, and I think it holds a lot of deep wisdom. So that's my postlude, Matt. How about you? Very cool. Uh, Laurel talked a little bit as we were talking about "One Should Be My Neighbor" about the the joy of seeing him in his professional relationships and all the people who helped put that show on. Uh, and, and I was reminded of the one of the podcasts I have been enjoying listening to, which is the Good Place podcast, which is the podcast about the making of the Good Place. Uh, oh, I have ranted I about I have ranted about my joy in the Good Place itself before, which comes back for its third season on September twenty seventh. But they've been doing a podcast this summer going through the prior two seasons worth of episodes, kind of talking with writers and creators. Uh, um, it's hosted by Mark Evan Jackson, who's one of the B players on the show and a great host for the, sh for the podcast. But one of the things that's really interesting about this, the podcast itself is that yes, they're talking to the, the actors and yes, they're talking to Mike Shore and some of the creative st staff, but they also talk to location scouts and set dressers and makeup artists and costume designers. And it, it, it was notable to me to realize how much behind the scene director commentary DVD special feature stuff I have watched in my life and how few of them have lifted up the work of the kind of next level creatives who help put on projects like this. And, right. you know, to, and not to get too film schooly about it, but like the degree to which auteur theory is alive and well in the production of DVD special features. Um, <laughs> and and the really way this, this show kind of helped unpack that in some really beautiful ways and feels like a really joyful celebration of all of the different people that it takes and the, gosh, I'm going to wrap a bow on it real tight, the whole neighborhood that it takes to put this thing together. And I, so I've, I've been enjoying that the principle of that show as well as to be sure of the execution. So that's my postlude for the week, Adam. And that about wraps it up for the show. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come back to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Chess Boxing. It's good to be back, Matt. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>